as we finish up this series on fortifying the family. Uh, it's been a great few nights getting to know you and, and getting to be here. It's a wonderful congregation, very uh, friendly. The singing is incredible. One other thing I want to commend you on is we've talked about some tough subjects this week, and I haven't had anything thrown at me. Uh, in fact, all the, the comments have been uh, friendly, have been uh, well-received. And so as we open up the Word, this is a church that loves the Word, and that's good to see. That's something that, that you can build on and continue doing the work of the Lord here in Lebanon. Let's begin with a prayer. Our Holy Lord and Father, we are thankful for this chance you've given us to open up your Word. I pray that you would help us as we open it to... Uh, see that your character that you've revealed to us on its pages. I pray that you would help us to be submitted to every word we read and help us to, to be conformed to the image of Christ that you've shown us in your word as well. Bless me as I speak to say that which is true and uh, that which guides all of our hearts closer to you as we leave from here after our, our time together tonight. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We've been talking all week about the family and fortifying the family. We've spent time on husbands and wives and children and the attack on the family from the culture and and we've, we've gone over so many statistics, I'm not going to share them again tonight, but about divorce, about the, the birth rate, about voluntary childlessness, about um, single parent families and, and how four out of ten children are being born into a single parent family. That, that we have less divorce than we used to because people just don't bother getting married in the first place and then they just part ways and statistically it's a lot harder to track. And so we're, we're in this culture that's surrounded by broken families, broken relationships, homes that are not what God intended them to be. And that trickles into the church. That, that influence can be seen in the church. But the other thing about it is, as we evangelize and as we reach out to the world, and they're converted and they become Christians, they bring some of that into the church because they just didn't know better. They did what the world taught them to do, what the culture has taught them to do. And then when they become Christians and they see there's a better way, and, and for some it's, it might be too late. Jesus' teaching is, is clear in Matthew 19 that, well, you don't get to go get remarried. And, and the apostles, even at that time, said, well, that's really hard. And Jesus didn't say, yeah, I know. It's just don't, don't worry about it. He said, yeah, it is. And so those, those realities come in as we convert more people. And as you look at the statistics of young people today identifying as L, G, B, or T, and, and there's stories starting to come out now of those that were brought into transgenderism years ago and realize this is miserable. This is awful. This is, this is killing me. I was sold lies, and they're, they're turning back to the truth. They're turning back to who God created them to be, and, and some of them are even coming towards Christianity, realizing they have totally wrecked themselves and, and really can't ever have a family and, and can't be what God intended them to be. And so we've got all of these, these broken homes surrounding us, people coming to the church, people that we reach out to are in these situations. That's a difficult reality. And I'm sure it's, it's difficult to sit and listen to everything we've talked about, the beauty of the family this week, of, of the beauty of male leadership, and the beauty of uh, the feminine motherly wife role in the family, and the beauty of children and bringing them up, to hear all that if you are widowed, if you are divorced, if you are single and not by your own choice. You want to be married and that the person just hasn't come along. Or you're childless, not by choice. You want children. You believe everything we said, that they're a blessing, but... God hasn't provided that opportunity. There's, there's so many uh, situations we look at. People that are estranged from their family, whether children who, who their parents have distanced themselves from them when you've grown up and your parents just don't want to talk to you. Or the other way around, parents who have, have put blood, sweat, and tears into raising their children and their children grow up and say, yeah, I, I don't really want to deal with mom and dad anymore. I'm not coming around for the holidays anymore. I'm not bringing my kids around them anymore. 
We've got all of these different brands of broken families. And so if you're in that boat, if you're in one of those situations, and to sit and hear these lessons and about the beauty of the family, you can say amen, but it can kind of hurt. To see that there's an ideal and realize I don't have it and, and I may never have it or I may have lost the opportunity to have it, I understand that would be a hurtful thing. That would be a difficult thing. And it's, it's good to still say amen and that's how it should be while still acknowledging it's unfortunate. It's, it's painful to not have that. That you're going to have to go maybe the rest of your days not having this ideal that God set before you. So what do we do about that? I want you to turn to Genesis 16. I want to look at three things if you're in one of those broken family situations. And again, there are there's so many different brands of it. We can't address everyone. They all take such different forms. Widowhood is not divorce, is not childlessness, is not the grief of losing a child. It's not, it's not a competition. It's not to say this is the worst one and this one hurts more. It, it's not that at all. All of these are difficult. But in all of these, we see God's comfort. We started off on Sunday morning with a reading in Psalm 68 where God says that he's the father to the fatherless, that his eye is on the widow. He cares about people from these situations. He cares about our brokenness. He doesn't just care. He doesn't leave us alone. He places a family around us. He loves us. He, he's there for us at every moment. But as we look at Genesis 16, as we realize that, that this brokenness is there, we see somebody in a broken family that really wasn't her fault at all. This is uh, where Abraham and, and Sarah, they're, they're wanting children. God promised Abraham you're going to have this lineage, and they're looking around saying, well, that kid's not showing up. Let's take this into our own hands. So Sarah says, here, take my handmaiden, Hagar. She'll have you the child there. We'll, we'll start our family that way. Because they didn't have faith. They didn't believe God's promise when he says you're going to have a child that he would help, or he would set up how that was going to happen. They said, we'll make this happen on our own. Of course, that brings difficulty into the relationship. Then there's this jealousy from Sarah. And so if we look in Genesis 16, verse 6, But Abram said to Sarah, I behold, your maid is in your power. Do to her what is good in your sight. So Sarah, I treated her harshly, and she fled from her presence. Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness by the spring on the way to Shur. He said, Hagar, Sarai's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress Sarai. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself to her authority. Moreover, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will greatly multiply your descendants so that they will be too many to count. The angel of the Lord said to her further, Behold, you are with child, and you will bear a son, and you shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has given heed to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man, his hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand will be against him, and he will live to the east of all his brothers. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are a God who sees. For she said, Have I even remained alive here after seeing him? Therefore the well was called Beer Lahiroi. Behold, it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Again, through no fault of her own, she had to be looking at it saying, Sarah, this whole operation was your idea. You are the one that said for Abraham to have this child through me, and then when, uh, when he takes me on as, as his concubine, now it's a problem? Now you're going to treat me like this? And so she's driven out from the family. But notice, God comes to her. This is a woman in, in very much a broken family situation of no fault of her own. And God comes to her and says, you're going to have a child. Many nations are going to come from him. They, they, this blessing that is given by God. And there's going to be difficulty, yeah. Ishmael's going to be against everyone and live separate from everybody. But she's going to have a child. And I love the term that she says. You're, she says, God, you are one who sees 
And then she names the place there in verse 14. The well was called Beer Lahairoi. You might have a footnote there that says, The well of the living one who sees me. If you're in one of those broken situations, if you're in, in any of those that we went through, of those, those situations where you can't have or don't have or have lost the family that you wish you had, God is the one who sees. God is the one who cares. God is the one that, that he, as he came to her, he sees everything we go through. We see again a few chapters later, she goes, gets uh, into more difficulty with this family. She was told to go back, so she does. And things go okay for a little while until Sarah has her son, Isaac. Look in Genesis 21. In Genesis chapter 21, and, and now there's this issue. There's Isaac and Ishmael. This, the, the, the family is not really going to withstand having both of these families under one roof, even though these are both Abraham's children. Sarah once again turns against Hagar, Ishmael, and Isaac. There's a little bit of a rivalry there. So as we pick up in Genesis 21, verse 14, So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave them to Hagar, putting them on her shoulder and gave her the boy and sent her away. And she departed and went, wandered about in the wilderness of Beersheba. When the water in the skin was used up, she left the boy under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him about a bow shot away, for she said, Do not let me see the boy die. And she sat opposite him and lifted up her voice and wept. God heard the lad crying, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What is the matter with you, Hagar? Do not fear, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him by the hand, for I will make a great nation of him. Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water, and she went and filled the skin with water and gave the lad a drink. God was with the lad, and he grew, and he lived in the wilderness and became an archer. We saw in the last one that God is the living one who sees, and then here it says God has heard the lad's cry. God sees the problems we go through. God sees the difficulty. Even if your family hasn't broken, even if you're just in a difficult spot in your marriage or, or really struggling with your children as a parent or, or whatever the case may be, God sees, God hears your cries. It's the beauty of this story because Hagar, I mean, Hagar and Ishmael are not, this is not God rushing in to save Abraham. It's not rushing in to save David. Sometimes we can look at those main characters of the Bible and think, well, yeah, of course God took care of them, but it's just little old me. Hagar was a handmaiden. Hagar was, was this Egyptian lady, not of the lineage of Christ, not really uh, a main character in the story, but God saw her and God heard the cry and God was there for them. And so remember in, in all of this, whatever situation you're in, you can see throughout the Bible God's comfort. You see Ruth and Naomi, that book of Ruth that starts off so poorly. Naomi's husband dies. Her, her sons are married to these women, uh, Ruth and, uh, and, and Orpah, and both of their husbands die. So Naomi loses her uh, husband. She loses both of her sons. Her family lineage is now destroyed. But we see through the book of Ruth, God working to bring redemption through Boaz. God working to bring about that, that child that ends up being David's grandfather, that ends up in the lineage of Christ because God saw and God heard. In fact, you see Naomi at the start of the book just say, I'm not even Naomi anymore. Don't call me that. My name means, is Mara. I'm bitter. God has made me bitter is what she says. But by the end, she has a grandson to show for. By the end, God has heard and seen and taken care of her family. We see the same with Hannah, Samuel's mother. She prays and, and wants that child, and God blesses her with the child. We see uh, in, in the book of Luke, chapter 2, when Jesus is presented at the temple, there's this woman named Anna, and it says she was married for seven years. Her husband died, and she was in her 80s, lived the rest of her life, widowed, serving the Lord in the temple. She didn't have the family that she had dreamed of, but God let her serve in his temple. God let her hold baby Jesus 
because of her service, because of her faithfulness, because she was looking forward to that Messiah coming. But we see so many of these where, where it ends up okay. So many times in the Bible, the barren have the children. So many times the things come back together in the end. Things work out in the end. It doesn't always work out in the end, does it? There's not always the, the beautiful ending and they all live happily ever after. Sometimes that divorce is final. Sometimes there's, there's just not a resolution in this life. We see Paul in, in 2 Corinthians 12 where he talks about his thorn in the flesh and he's asking God over and over and over, please take this from me. And what's his answer? My grace is sufficient for you. If you're in that moment and you think, I can't handle this. I've, I've been through so much. God's grace is sufficient for you. I've, uh, you know, I'm, I'm fortunately at a pretty good place in life right now with wife and kids and all that. I've had those moments where it really felt like everything was falling apart with family, with relationships, with everything else. And there's that reminder, God's grace is sufficient to get you through those times. In one of those moments, one of my good friends pointed me to Lamentations 3, 22 and 23. The, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. You notice the name of the book that that occurs in, Lamentations. You read the whole book. The entire book is lamenting. The entire book is saying... Things are really bad. It's Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. It's, it's him describing all of the downfall of his people and the punishment coming on them. And, and everything, I mean, it, it is at the lowest point of the Old Testament, lamentations. He's lamenting all the bad that's happening. And he stops in the middle of all the lamenting to say, God's steadfast love doesn't stop. Even as bad as it is right now, God still loves you. God's still your portion. God is still there for you. And so when you have those low moments, if, if the family has broken and it's fallen apart, you need to know that God sees, God hears, God cares. His steadfast love does not cease. His grace is sufficient. But then number two, you need to know that you have a family for support. We see Ruth and Naomi. At least they had each other. Ruth, uh, Naomi says, I'm going back to my homeland. Ruth, and as she tells her daughters-in-law, go home. You go back to your homeland. I'm going to mine. But Ruth says... I'm staying with you. You are my family. Your people are my people. Your land is my land. I'm going with you. And that support that they have for each other is a beautiful thing that, again, ends up at the end of that, that short book in a blessing to both of them. We have that family in the church where we can look at, and as we looked at on Sunday morning in Mark chapter 10, verse 28 and, and following, where Jesus says, those that have given up everything for the gospel, what you're going to receive in return isn't just you get to go to heaven when you die, but also in this life. You're going to be given family members, mothers and brothers and sisters. You're going to be given farms and, and uh, houses and places to stay and everything that you need. And he doesn't mean that you're going to get rich because you're a Christian. He means you look around this room and what's yours, what's theirs is yours. What's yours is theirs. We're this family that shares together in all things. He's given us a family for support. And so as, as we do that, when God says that he is a father to the fatherless, we cannot let the fatherless stay fatherless. When we see uh, young men who maybe their parents got divorced, maybe they lost their dad, maybe uh, uh, even their mom, maybe they just don't have that two-parent household that they should, whose job is that? We spoke the other day about Cain and him saying, well, I'm not my brother's keeper. We are our brother's keeper. We are uh, to look over the young of our congregation. We are to take it on our responsibility to look and say, this is family. These are our, our children and grandchildren that, that are that next generation we spoke of last night. And it's on all of us to help out in whatever way we can. It's on all of us to make sure these kids have what they need. And so we can't let the fatherless remain fatherless. 
We can't let the motherless remain motherless because their church family has been given to them for that. We cannot let the widowed stay lonely or uncared for. Look at 1 Timothy 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5. We've, we drew on this a little bit the other day, but there's so much in this chapter that is informative about what the church is supposed to be. And, and maybe, maybe ways that we've gotten away from the connectedness that they had in that time. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 3, Paul tells Timothy, Honor widows who are widows indeed. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, they must first learn to practice piety in regard to their own family and to make some return to their parents, for this is acceptable in the sight of God. Now she who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. A widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality to strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in, in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. He's, there's this very much understanding there between Paul and Timothy. There's supposed to be a list, a roster of the women of the church, the widows of the church, and he says, we're going to take care of them. If they're involved in the work of the church, if they have served the church in some way and they're over 60 years old, when he says to put them on the list, it means the church supports them, cares for them, makes sure they have what they need. That financially, the church can be in a place to say, you know what, monthly we're going to take care of our own widows. It's, uh, again, it's a concept that I think has, has been lost a little bit to time. He goes on to say with the younger widows, that's not for them. For them, they should get married. They should keep their home, as we looked at on, on Monday night. But this idea that the church is a family that cares for its own, and he inserts in there, if anyone does not provide for his own, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. And so the family, the, the, the blood family has that first obligation, but then we have that obligation to each other to make sure that those that are in that situation, that are in need, and here he's talking about more financially and materially in need, but whatever need, not leaving people... Uh, uncared for. James 1.27, it says, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God is to care for or visit widows and orphans in their distress. It's to look at broken families and say, what do they need? How can we care for them? How can we make sure they have everything that they need? So we can't let the fatherless stay fatherless. We can't let the widowed stay widowed or lonely. Or we can't let them stay lonely or uncared for. Romans 12.15 says, we can't let the weeping weep alone. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. Again, in a culture of broken families, in a culture of, of divorce and, and loss and, and everything that we've, we've outlined already, there's a lot of weeping, there's a lot of sorrow, there's a lot of loneliness, there's a lot of, of bearing burdens by yourself. But the church is a family. We're supposed to bear one another's burdens. We're supposed to be there for each other in those moments. And so when we see those families that are broken, when we see that person who's lonely, when we see that, that person who's gone through everything and is, is bearing that, that burden, the weight of their family falling apart or, or the weight of the estrangement from a loved one or any of those situations, weep with those who weep. Everyone in this room is bearing some kind of burden. The Bible says we are not supposed to bear those alone. We've got to build the kind of relationships and be intentional about, about knowing each other and, and being in each other's lives to a degree that we can know when somebody's going through something. The easiest thing in the world as church members is to pass each other in the foyer and say, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. And then move on. I, I uh, say this everywhere I go as I speak on the church and our relationships with each other. 
That's probably the biggest single lie in the church. How are you? Good. Have you ever said, I'm good on a day you weren't good? Probably. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands of how many people have lied while they were at the, uh, at the, the, the Sunday assembly, but we probably all have at some point. And no, that's really not the, the venue, the time to, to open up all of our problems on one another. But we do need to have a venue or a time to do so. We do need to have those kind of relationships where somebody in the church can help us bear our burden. And especially in these difficulties that come up in our families where marriages are struggling. I've, I've seen it myself as a minister. I've talked to other ministers. How many times that a couple in the church comes and says, well, we're about to get divorced, but we, I guess we'll try counseling before we get divorced. Well, they've been talking about it for eight months, and they got right to the, the brink of divorce where they're calling the attorneys, and they say, well, I guess we'll talk to the elders. We'll talk to the preacher. Why are you bearing that burden alone? You've got a church family for that. Why are you weeping on your own when, when this is a, a heavy burden that you're bearing? You've got a family here who's here for you. You've got people you can lean on to help you through those times. Don't let it get to that point. And be the kind of family where people don't feel like they have to bear that burden alone and keep it quiet to themselves. And, man, we can't, we can't let anybody see that we have any problems. We all have problems. We live in a broken world. We live in a time where there, there is some burdens to be borne. And that's okay. That's what a church family is for. Bottom line out of all of this is we can't let any of our own, of our own brothers and sisters around us, go through life without a family without knowing the love of a family, without knowing the spiritual love that Jesus put among us. And when he said to love one another, not just love your neighbor, not just love your neighbor as yourself, but in the church he says, love one another as I have loved you. It's on a whole other level, the sacrifice of loving as Jesus loved us. And so it's being a family and supporting those who are in need, those who are, are mourning, those who maybe have that brokenness in their background. And then third to those that are, are from those broken families, you have the opportunity in the church to busy yourself with service. Interestingly, as, as it talks about these widows here, notice what he had said in verse 5 of 1 Timothy 5, that she has fixed her hope on God, continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. She's busied herself with the work of God. And as it goes on in verse 10, the, the, the widows that they're supposed to provide for are those that have the reputation for good works. They've brought up children shown hospitality to strangers, washed the saints' feet, assisted those in distress, devoted herself to every good work. She's involved in the work of the church. Even brokenness, even difficulty, even being widowed, even being divorced, even in all of these situations, you realize you bring assets to the table. You bring the opportunity to serve. Sometimes it, it's, for a, a number of years, I was in ministry before Allison and I got married, I went home to an empty house every night, so I, I've, I've been there. It's not the same as being widowed. It's not the same loss, but that loneliness of, man, there's, there's nobody there. Well, guess what? When I had that loneliness, I had a lot more time on my hands for certain people of the church. I had the ability to, to serve and, and visit and go and, and help people in ways that I just don't now that I have four children. Paul even talks about that when he talks about his own singleness in 1 Corinthians 7, about the advantage that it is to his ministry. If you're in that situation of widowed or divorced and on your own, that is, it is not a good thing. It's not a positive thing. It's not something to, to look at and say, all right, good, I, my schedule freed up. Nobody's going to look at it that way. But you look at it and say, you know what, God can make good come out of this because I do have a little bit more time. I do have maybe some more opportunity to serve the church in that way. One of the other things is you have the opportunity to offer empathy. The things that you go through in that difficulty uh, I, I do, uh, as, as has been mentioned when I was introduced, I do a lot of writing, and in my writing I've been writing about the transgenderism issue, and 
I had a lady reach out and, and ask me to write specifically on, on what family members of those that have gone to transgenderism should do. And that's a hard thing. That is a very difficult thing. But I wrote an article kind of addressing it for as best as I, I thought I could. And when I wrote that, another lady wrote to me and said, you know what, my, my brother is, has decided he's a woman. And the woman that wrote me originally, it was her son, had wrote and said, yeah, my son has, has left the church, not only left the church, has decided he's a woman now, is going through hormonal treatment. It, it's a horrible thing. She's up at night, every night, praying all night long because she, she just can't stand to see what her child is going through. And this other lady can't stand to see what her brother is going through. The beauty of it is they threw that, that one of them messaged me and the other messaged me and I put them in contact with each other because they can bless each other. They have an empathy there that a lot of us just can't relate to. When you've been through those difficult times, when you've lost a child, when you've lost a spouse, when, when you've gone through divorce, when you've seen a, spouse, a child walk away from the faith, it's not a good thing. But from that experience, God can bless somebody else through what you've seen, through what you've been through, through what you, you know by experience that other people may not know. Things that you've, you've seen and, and lived through that other people just have not. You have the ability to pray with people in a way that others just might not. Uh, an understanding of the loneliness, an understanding of the, the pain and the grief and, and things that others probably don't have the same understanding of. And so you have the opportunity to serve the church in that way. You think about the people in the Old Testament. I mentioned Jeremiah earlier, but those that were involved around the time of the Babylonian captivity, Daniel and Esther and Nehemiah, not a good thing. Imagine seeing your homeland destroyed, relatives killed, dragged off essentially into captivity, slavery in a sense. Uh, Daniel and, and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were forced into the, the king's service. Not only do they get dragged away by Nebuchadnezzar, but then they have to serve Nebuchadnezzar. How, how painful would that be to have to work in the court of the man who just destroyed your homeland? But God made some good come out of that, didn't he? You look at Nehemiah, the same thing. In captivity, God made good come out of that. Esther, where, where she, uh, Malachi says, look, or Mordecai says, maybe if you do this, you know, maybe this is why God put you here. If, if you don't do it, maybe help will come for, some, for someone else. God will save his people somehow, some way, but maybe... You've come here for such a time as this. Maybe this difficulty that puts you in this situation is an opportunity that God has given you. Joseph, of course, had the best perspective on this. His brothers threw him in a pit and sold him into slavery. And in slavery, he's falsely accused and, and then thrown into prison. And not only thrown into prison, but forgotten in prison by the guy that could have gotten him out of prison. I mean, Joseph's life we would all look at that and go, that is horrible. I mean, talk about a broken family. His own brothers pretended he was dead and kicked him out of the family. Difficult times. And then you come to the end of it in, in Genesis 50 when their father dies and they think, all right, Joseph is going to get revenge on us now. And what does Joseph say? You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. It's the same concept of Romans 8.28 of God makes all things work together for good to those that love him according to his purpose. Well, so many times that gets translated to everything is going to be great because God loves you. That's not what that says. It says he makes all things work together for good. Anything that happens to you, anything that Satan throws at you, any bad thing that happens in your life, any brokenness that comes your way, it's going to hurt. It's not a good thing. Nobody's saying it's a good thing. God, in his faithfulness, in his love for us, because he is that one who sees like Hagar, who hears like he did with Hagar, he makes good come out of that. 
And so if you're in one of those difficult situations, if you're in a family uh, situation, if, you're, if any of this resonates with you at all, or, or there's any kind of pain whatsoever, realize God can make good come out of it. Again, the, the benefit that you can be to somebody else because of the things you've gone through and seen. The blessing you can be to the kingdom, to the lost, to, to however God uses you, let him make good come out of bad situations, as he did with Joseph and Daniel and Esther and Nehemiah. And, and of course, ultimately... The ultimate good coming out of bad was Jesus on the cross. That was a bad situation. It worked out really good for all of us. As we finish, I want to kind of focus on one other angle of this. As we've looked at brokenness, we've looked at God's love for the broken and, and all of those things. But as Ben Franklin said, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. You don't want to get to the point. I mean, some things you can't help. Some things are out of your control. However, some of these things are not. When we look at divorce, when we look at the, the difficulties of, of all of these broken families that we're surrounded with, when we look at losing children to the world or, or these ideologies that are trying to take our children, prevention, preemptive work is the best thing we can do. And so the first thing, as, as always, and I think that we really need to get back to, to drilling this into the mind of our children, drilling it into the minds of those who are currently married, those that are going to get married, divorce just isn't an option. It is not something that Christians can look at and say, that's, uh, well, I've got that out in my back pocket. If it works, great, I'll be happy all my days. If it doesn't, oh well. And one of the things we're seeing more and more these days is couples that are married for 20, 25 years, and then when they become empty nesters, yeah, this never really worked for me. I stayed with, you know, for the kids, but now I'm going to go ahead and get divorced. You see, uh, and I, I've known a number of Christian couples where you go to church with them every single Sunday, again, pass them in the hallway and say, how are you doing? Good, you're good to find out they were miserable in their marriage for years, for decades, and then just decided, I don't really want to do this anymore. We've got to prevent that. Number one, we need to teach young people divorce is not an option, but when you are married, divorce is not an option. But the other side of that is, I think there are a lot of faithful Christians who know that divorce is not an option, and so they think, well, I guess I'll just stay miserable. Why? Why? If you, if you are a Christian couple and you're looking at it saying, you know what, I'm not real happy, but I know I'm not supposed to get divorced, work on it ask for help. Don't be that person that waits until the last minute to go ask for help. Reach out to your elders, to your minister, to, to those that you trust, to, to find some help and realize it doesn't have to be this way, and I don't want to become a broken family. I don't want to leave that legacy. And, and we have this, this concept of normalcy bias. Things can get worse and worse and worse, but because it happens gradually and, and it, it, you get there slowly, you think, well, it's fine. It's fine. It's probably not that big a deal. It's probably not that big a deal. Same thing happens with, uh, you know, I've, I've seen people get uh, knee replacement surgery. And they walk around and go, yeah, my knee hurts, but, eh, you know, it's fine, it's fine, it, it, it hurts. And then they get the knee replacement surgery and think, why did I walk around like that for 10 years? There's a lot of couples walking around miserable every single day because they won't work on it. They won't do something about their marriage. And it either ends in divorce or they just live out the rest of their days miserable, hobbling around on that, that broken marriage just like a broken knee. Don't do that doesn't have to be that way, especially in Christ. With a, a couple that is dedicated to being the man and being the woman God wants them to be, it doesn't have to be that way. Another thing we need to teach our young people, marry someone who shares your beliefs. There's so much debate over 2 Corinthians 6 where it says, do not be un unequally yoked, and well, can you marry a non-Christian? Should you? What is it really saying there? Just look at the Old Testament. God told them, do not marry people from out there. Do not marry from the pagan, idolatrous peoples around you because they will corrupt you. And guess what happened every time they did? They got corrupted. 
And so we need to teach our young people, you're not just looking for a spouse, you're looking for a Christian spouse, somebody you can raise godly children with, they will share your values, that, that you are working towards eternity together. We need to have that drilled into the, the minds of every person who begins seeking marriage, or, or long before they begin seeking marriage. One of the other things is do not allow sin in the camp of your home. Do not allow, as, as we spoke of last night, the, the influences on your children. Know what's on their phones. Know what they're watching. Know what's on TV. But among uh, Christian couples, one of those things that is, is put out as marriage advice, and it's very good marriage advice, but it's one of those like, why on earth do you need this? You should not have a phone or device or anything else that your, uh, your spouse can't access. But I've seen that happen. I've seen couples where, you know, why are you touching my phone? And they've got the screen protector on. They've got all this stuff. Of, no, you can't have my passcode. Well, you're one flesh. Now, if there's a, a situation in the marriage where you've got to be checking your spouse's phone every single day to make sure nothing's up, that's not good either. That's not a good sign either. But this idea of we're totally independent people and you don't get to know who I'm messaging and who I'm talking to and, and who I'm, you know, chatting with from work at, at 9 o'clock at night, no. Don't allow those things to fester. Don't allow those things to become what they could become. I've spoken plenty this week about pornography. If that is an issue in your home, whether as a spouse or your children, no, you've got to cut these things off. These things, uh, again, they start small, and they devour entire families and break homes, and then we are left with everything that we're talking about here. Preemptive care is one of the best things that we can do. And then, of course, as we spoke of last night, raise your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. There are no silver bullets, but there is just that daily dedication to say, what do I have to do to make sure this child knows that we love God in this family, that we serve God in this family, that we're going to do things his way? I've mentioned a few times I'm a huge sports fan. I'm bound and determined that my sons, at the very least, are going to root for the Colorado Avalanche. I was going to say the Denver Broncos. I'm a little ashamed of them right now, so maybe, I, I don't know. I might let them off the hook with that one, but I want them to root for my teams. So what do I do? I put them, the games on TV. I buy the little guys the T-shirts and the hats, and, and we watch the games together. We talk about the games together. Hey, man, don't you, you want to watch hockey with me? And, of course, Robbie, my, my little three-year-old, yeah, I want to watch hockey. And he's sat right next to me right there. He's an Avalanche fan. He doesn't hardly know anything about it, but he knows he likes watching hockey with Dad. Do that with your faith. Hey, in this family, we talk about the Bible together. In this family, we pray together. In this family, we sing songs together. Start there when they're really little and just carry that on as they go up. All of this brokenness, there's certain things, as I said, you can't prevent. You cannot prevent death. You can't prevent somebody who is bound and determined on divorce or adultery or, or any of those other things. You, you can't force them to change, but we can prevent, uh, pre preemptively prevent some of this by committing as couples to say, we're not going to have secrets from each other. We're not going to have those side friends that, that you know, I'm not really going to let you know who I'm talking to. I'm not going to have a pornography addiction. I'm not going to have... We're not going to let our kids talk to people that, that we don't trust or, or over in houses that we don't trust or, or hold a device that, that might be indoctrinating them into really bad ideas or, or bringing sin into their life. We're going to do everything we can to prevent sin from breaking our family. Jesus has broken the curse of sin. The curse of death is still here, but he's going to break that one eventually. We still deal with death. We still cannot get around that one. That brokenness will always be with us, but let sin not have its hold on us anymore. That kind of brokenness we have to eradicate from our houses. That's one of the biggest things we've been talking about all week is fortifying the family. Men being what they're supposed to be, leading their homes. Women being what they're supposed to be, submitting to their husbands and, and raising children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Us viewing our children and grandchildren the way that God has called us to view them. 
doing all these things, fortifying the home as God has called us to. We can prevent the brokenness of sin. We can't prevent the brokenness of death. But that's the beauty of it. Those that we've lost, we'll see again someday. Those that, because of Jesus Christ, because of the resurrection, because of the hope of the gospel, both of these curses will be broken. And again, when we have those losses, when we have that, that pain and the brokenness and all that's there, we have that promise. When we get there, God will wipe away all tears. All of the pain you're going through right now. As, as we saw with Hagar, God sees and God hears. Reach out to him. Lean on him. Lean on your church family. Engage yourself in the work of the church. He's given us these opportunities to deal with these difficulties that come up in our life. What a blessing it is to be a Christian. What a blessing it is to be part of the church and to have this family. What a blessing it is to serve Jesus Christ. But if you don't serve Jesus Christ, if you're not one of his children, have not put him on in baptism and repented of your sins, that invitation always stands. If you are a Christian, but you've strayed, you need to repent, that invitation always stands. More than anything, as we finish this week together, as we're on this last and final night, I want to thank you, number one, for having me, to your elders and for those involved in bringing me out. But number two, I want to leave you with, what does your home look like? Does it look like a home where Jesus is king? You as an individual, as a father, as, as a wife, as, as a teenager, as whatever you are, are you bringing to the table what Jesus has called you to bring to the table in your house? That's the question I want to leave you with. And, and how can our families be more fortified, stronger in Christ? Think on that. And as always, if there's any need, come as we stand and sing.